Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Uh, We have a great discussion ahead with uh, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Phil, we'll get started with you. Go ahead. Thanks, John. So this week I thought I'd talk about uh, an idea that I came across, I guess, a few years ago now. I can't remember when exactly the first time, but I think it's pretty useful and pretty applicable. And it it comes from a guy who flies a little bit under the radar, but seems to have a real, I mean, not only does he sound like my kind of guy, but he kind of flies under the radar and doesn't get quite the attention he deserves despite a a stellar track record and, and a pretty impressive knack for communication. That's a guy by the name of Tony Deaton, who's uh, based right there in the Alps, I think, John, and uh, has uh, really developed, uh, like I said, a very impressive track record and and has a lot of great ideas. And so I've made a list of some of the things he's talked about and written about, and I'm going to revisit them from time to time. And one of the things that jumped out at me recently uh, that he's that he's talked about before that uh, that I really like is this idea of viewing yourself as a collector. And so I just as a personal weird quirk that I have, I've always liked to collect things. My wife thinks it goes overboard into over-collecting things. And that's one of the things I'll talk about at the end is you don't want to risk becoming a hoarder. But I've always just liked collecting things. I mean, I wasn't one of these youthful investment prodigies that was investing to great success at the age of nine. But I was always collecting things. You know, I was always collecting baseball cards and sports memorabilia. I was collecting coins a little bit. Uh, I was also the the weird kid. We must not have had enough uh, neighborhood community. I'd, I'd collect license plate numbers, right? Like write down a license plate every time a car would drive by. So it just, it spurred in me an interest in collecting things for its own sake, right? There's a there's a process that's enjoyable. It's, it's just really have an interesting experience if it's something that, that spurs your imagination. And the way Tony Deedens described it is, is viewing your investments and your your overall portfolio and what you own as a collection of earning assets, right? And in this case, you you the, the the assets are represented by stocks and fractional interests in businesses or even bonds, you know, claims on those businesses, or cash, which is you know a collection of something different, right? Some some store of value that you can use in the future. But if you view investing through this lens as buying to collect great assets rather than buying to sell, I think that's really an interesting way to frame it. So again, this only applies if you're taking my view of things as a business first investor, right? So this doesn't really have much value to anybody that's looking, that's buying with the idea of selling, particularly if you're looking to sell quickly, right? And and again, to, for the 8,000th time, I don't sit on a high throne looking down my nose at people that are trading frequently or speculating. I mean, those are all you know, valid frameworks in their own right, and, and there's a lot to learn from them. It's just a very different game than what I'm talking about and what Tony's talking about, which is, which is buying to own, and in this case, taking it a step further and buying to collect. Um, so you know, it, it marries somewhat with the idea of punch card investing, which, of course, Buffett's talked about. But I, the problem I have with that is that I think 
punch card investing gets taken too literally sometimes. I mean, Buffett's talked about having 20 punches and then you get a lot of people that get tied up in the semantics of that and they think that Buffett's a hypocrite because he certainly used more than 20 punches or it's just, you know, very few people I think have the patience to, to, to view their investing life as just having 20 punches on the card. And of course that misses the obvious point, right? Which is that you just need to be more selective and more discerning in your investment behavior and stop, you know, applying the, you know, throw spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks approach. Um, so that's why I think the collector's mindset is a little more effective for people and why I think it's a better, it's a better framework to think about. Because if you're buying something as a collector, you know, your, your idea is to own it for a long, long time. Your idea is ideally to own it permanently, right? If it's a good asset for you and it fits well in your collection, you don't have any ince- incentive to sell it. You don't have any intent to sell it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be there forever. Conditions change, people change, life changes, and you know your, your collection will change over time, right? Circumstances will dictate the nature of your collection. Um, so it's a little more flexible than than just being, you know, a true punch card investor where you feel artificially constrained by a certain number of of punches on the list or whatever. Uh, but I just really love this whole idea that, you know, if if you have a collection of good assets and you look through those assets to their earning power, that to me seems about the the purest possible representation I could think of in terms of my ideal for portfolio management and investing. And if you think of yourself in that light as the museum curator or custodian and you're really trying to buy things that are valuable and and worthy and they're going to last and they're going to stand the test of time rather than they're just going to draw, you know, a few extra guests this week and then you're going to flip them to the next museum down the road. I think that's just a better way to view the world. So again, I think the the counterweight to this, there's always two sides to the to the issue, right? And so one thing I want to be very wary of here is not being a hoarder. So I think we talked about a few weeks ago now that you know, I, one thing I've been prone to collecting is information, right? So I collect books, literally, in the sense that I have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. Um, that's probably overdone at, at times, right? I mean, there's probably books that I've spent too much time and money on that just aren't worthy of my time and attention. You know, I, I ran through the numbers a few weeks ago on the tens of thousands of files that I've compiled. Thank God for the cloud because I can all store them up in the cloud now and I don't have to have my my little, uh, it was a, it was bigger than a little external hard drive that I used to use to back it up, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, but, you know, do I really need to spend time storing those things down? I mean, to John's point, you can access things at the touch of a fingertip now. So collecting that type of data and information is probably counterproductive. And, and when you become kind of a hoarder and you're collecting information or assets for their own sake or you're collecting to kind of prove some sort of point as to what a great diligent collector you are, that gets away from the mission too, right? You're not you're not collecting for its own sake. You're collecting to assemble a trove of something valuable. In this case, you know, a portfolio of earning assets that's going to protect your capital over time. So I thought that was a useful framework. What do you guys think? Is this am I getting too too romanticized into this notion, or, or does this resonate? Well, Phil, when you introduced the topic of collecting, I was like, you're definitely going to talk about NFTs. And well, no. <laughs> just <laughs> I kidding. Did, <laughs> I didn't think about that. I mean, look, you know, it, it raises a fascinating question. I, I certainly don't know what to make of it, but you know, look, it, there, there's some element of uh, generational cyclicality to this, for lack of a better word, right? I mean, 
I remember, you know, my parents thought baseball cards were marginally okay, I guess, because they were sort of around previously. But, you know, that gener- like the first generation of baseball card collectors and whatever it was, like, I guess, post-World War II, probably thought they're the dumbest things in the world, like very frivolous and stupid, right? And, and coin collectors are, are much more ancient, so they never probably had that that problem. But I mean, look, you can definitely get into stupid, frivolous stuff. Like, you know, I know plenty of people that collected Beanie Babies, right? Or, mm-hmm. and or pogs. pogs or yeah. Pogs. Yeah, all this dumb stuff that proves very... And so that's why I think it's such a powerful metaphor, right? If you're collecting the wrong things, you're going to get killed. And so <laughs> you just have mm-hmm. to be careful and, and focus your time on and your assets on the right things. Right. And there's something to be said about you know, everything's a fully abundant in the digital world and a way to create scarcity, you know, if albeit artificially, uh, is pretty novel and interesting. And you could see how like Taylor Swift might have a private, like listen only five time kind of token. I don't know, right. maybe getting out there was thinking on a different angle in collectibles anyway. Like I similarly indulged in baseball cards and you know, autographs and obviously sports was kind of the center of my collecting. I definitely had a couple coins here and there that I found interesting and fascinating for whatever reasons. Um, And yeah, I like the metaphor of portfolio management as a process of collecting. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, Where I feel there might be a little contrast is like, you know, it... Perhaps in collecting, basically because of how I've pursued it, it was a very singular focus on one certain area. And in the portfolio, I think it helps to be uh, think a little more broadly and try to expose myself to something more than just one area. But that said, I think there's some personality traits that lend themselves to just collecting and collecting by different genres, whatever it may be. Um, I read this book, The Hair with Amber Eyes, and it really resonated with me for a variety of reasons. And I found myself starting to buy a few Natsuki on uh, eBay. And so I have a mini collection of those now anyway. Um, but so, yeah, back to portfolio management, I think I, I, I certainly see the resonance of this idea um, where what you talked about of like punch card, right? That resonates with me in a lot of ways. Um, and I totally agree that some people take it too literally. And personally, what I've called it is a predisposition to inaction over action, right? And it's simple. It, to me, it means the exact same thing. Like Buffett's not telling you don't buy any more than 20 stocks ever. He's saying set a really high bar. And that means both when you buy something and thinking about opportunity costs to replace that something. So set a really high bar and don't make action your first muscle reflex when you find something interesting. Uh, make sure that action follows a set of sequences and processes and you know be really discriminant. The more discriminant you are, uh, the better off you'll be. Um, and I you know I think that has some relevance in the collecting world and in investing that that definitely resonates with me. so. Yeah, I totally like the idea a lot. Yeah, exactly. Because I think there's just, I look around and I see so many people chasing things today. And again, I'm not not overtly opining on NFTs, although I do find it odd and I'll come back to it in a minute. But I do find lots of assets today across the board, whether it's wine or sports memorabilia or certain publicly listed securities, 
that just don't pass that test. And it's not that they don't pass the test in my judgment. It's that they don't pass the test in anyone's judgment, right? I mean, it's just so obviously a failure in this regard. And people just don't care because they're not using this mindset, right? They're not buying to collect. They're buying to sell to the next highest bidder, you know, a month, a day, whenever down the road. And and that's fine. Like I said, uh, you know, there's a place for it, I guess. It's just, you know, I think what gets dangerous is where people that have an investor's mindset or want to have a collector's mindset get suckered into that world and they end up owning Beanie Babies or Pogs or whatever down the road. And I, I will say, too, that I think not only do you need to be worried about things that have no scarcity value and, and no intrinsic value whatsoever, right? And that applies to all sorts of commodities. But you also have to be worried about things where you're buying on the basis of artificial scarcity, right? So, I mean, I, I figured this out relatively early with baseball cards. And, and thank heaven, like, I never really collected big dollar stuff, right? I mean, I collected... Right little bits here and there with allowance and chore money that was a rounding error in the grand scheme of things. And I still have the collection because I like looking back on it for nostalgia. And it's it was fun to put together a whole set and it was fun to trade with my friends and it was fun to look up the prices in Beckett and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't a job or or a financial burden or or allocation like it is for some people. But then what ruined the sports trading card world, right? It was when Upper Deck and the other big guys in the industry sort of lost their discipline and flooded the market with too much supply because anybody can buy the rights and print stuff on cardboard. And the same is true of these NFTs, right? I mean, there's nothing really stopping this from just flooding the world with assets. I mean, you you brought up the, the music thing, which is interesting because a friend of mine ran the auction company when Wu-Tang sold that album about four, five, six years ago now, I guess it was, where it was that an album really that... Bought? That Martin Shkreli ultimately bought and had to uh, had to give back when he was indicted and sent to prison. <laughs> the yeah, blast so, from the past there. Yeah, so I was actually in the room when like little snippets of it were played, and it was cool. And you know, look, they're a big time, you know, act, and they can do whatever they want. Um, and and there is value in an album that they came together and produced that can't be listened to by the broader public. I don't know if that'll really stay under wraps forever. Uh, but there is, I mean, that that business makes some sense, right? It's just, it gets pushed too far, right? I mean, I, I wonder if we're finally in the era of the end of diamonds, right? Because I don't know about anybody else, but like I happen to finally wake up to the artificial nonsense cartel that is De Beers right mm -hmm. about the same time that I was getting engaged. And so, of course, I was not about to skimp out on the diamond and, <laughs> and disappoint my wife. But, you know, it did kind of boil my blood that like diamonds are not scarce and forget about all the ethical implications of the industry, but it's really a nonsense thing. It's all marketing and artificial scarcity. And now it seems like between the combination of the internet and price discovery, blowing the doors off of at least part of that, you know, people are for whatever reason, finally waking up to the concept that you can have the purest of pure diamonds artificially created in a lab at, you know, pennies on the dollar and none of the ethical implications. So why wouldn't that be better? Like if you just want something beautiful to wear as a piece of jewelry, you know, does it really need to come in a pale blue box, you know, mined at some horrible place in, in sub-Saharan Africa or whatever and, and traded through these, you know, illegal cartels in Belgium? Like, so I, you know, but that's persisted for what? A hundred years at least, 
And so <laughs> this stuff can go on forever, but you know, eventually I feel like somebody's left holding the bag and I, I really don't want that to be me. Yeah, that's one of the hard parts with it all, right? In, in the end, collecting, and, and I think that's part of where, you know, it's hard to truly draw the analogy to portfolio management, but collecting, you are playing the Keynesian beauty contest if you want to flip something, yeah. Yeah. if you want to get out of it, if you want to like monetize it in some sort of way. Um, but, you know, like you see all these pitches nowadays of like art as an asset class has returned X amount or sports team ownership which we talked about last week, right? Non-cash flowing asset, but has beat the S&P right. over the last 30 years. Um, that's a form of collecting. Uh, sports teams, at least, the scarcity is somewhat real, though obviously you see an impulse to kind of decrease the scarcity when the leagues need some money because that's an easy way to kind of tap into that. So you definitely get some interesting effects that, that come into play. Um, I wonder, like, generationally, what collecting is going to be like as more of the world and more of the younger generation grow up entirely uh, in the digital realm. Like, if certain physical things will have more value because of that, or if it'll just, like, make it entirely fleeting in value. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah, I, I do, too. And, you know, look, this is one of my great questions. I mean, I'm actually somewhat shocked that we've spent so much time on this podcast not addressing cryptocurrencies, but it's one of the great <laughs> questions I have about it, right? Is, I mean, I don't know how many people that own Bitcoin or any of the cryptocurrencies have actually dug into the original principles behind it or read Satoshi's original white paper or whatever, but it's just not clear to me that that supply is going to stay constrained forever, stay constrained forever. So I, I you know, gold, it's like, that's the common argument, I guess. And and there, you don't really know what the constraint is either, but there are, you know, physical costs to getting it out of the ground and so forth. And, and it's just more of like a typical bet. In this case, again, as a non-expert in the cryptography, it's just outside of my ability to really handicap what the odds are. And it would seem to me that if Bitcoin were to really take over the world, that the, you know, the natural human desire, if, if this was invented by humans and cryptogra cryptography, it could be overcome by humans and cryptography. So it is a small part of assets, I guess, you know, but as a is a dominant form in the world, it just strikes me as, as somewhat odd. And so we're, we're way off topic on the collecting thing, but that is sort of how I would view that world is whether I'm buying a partial ownership in a business as a publicly traded stock a sports team, a piece of art, whatever. I mean, it has to be something that I'm either going to enjoy and use as part of my collection or something where I feel like five and 10 years from now, I have strong odds that despite all the adversity that the world's going to throw at me, that this is still going to be a valuable piece of the collection. Well, Phil, I wrote two essays on Bitcoin back in, I can't remember if it was 2012 or 2013 when I was first exposed to it mm. um, and did my deep dive. And I do think it relates directly to collecting because... My argument, like the second essay I wrote was Bitcoin's worldview and why it matters. And it's like, you can't want to be a currency while creating, gearing your essence and incentive to collecting and hoarding rather than actually driving commerce. That the two are diametrically opposed and that you will run into a situation where like, there is no uh, consumption that happens and everyone hoards it, which will collapse its value at a, at a certain point. Isn't it already? I mean, how much of whatever, how many Bitcoin have been mined at this point? Like 
four, like some number million, right? Out of twenty-one, isn't that the total supposedly? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would blank on the specific numbers. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I there's some right. huge proportion of the the total that are mined and that are not in circulation, right? Because they're locked away. And you hear about all these people who are locked out of their wallet, and then those are lost forever. I guess would be <laughs> the idea there. So yeah, it does strike me as odd, and and I agree, it seems counterproductive to its own stated goals. Um, and again, I'm I'm not an expert either on this, but it does strike me as also odd that the the energy infrastructure and environmental burden seems egregiously high. And it's it just seems almost like you couldn't write this kind of thing that the supposed savior of humanity and uh, eco-friendly car manufacturer would, would start to encourage this. Well, I think of, Ethereum gets around a lot of these problems, but we're getting a little far from collecting. But. Yeah, I, I agree, but that's what I mean. It just seems odd, right? That that's Bitcoin's what's taken over. But yeah, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> John, how about you? What do you think on collecting? Yeah, I'm going to steer clear of Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> other than to say, Elliot, you probably uh, overthought the issue. You should have just bought some Bitcoin back in <laughs> yeah, 20, exactly, right? 2012. Well, I bought Ethereum, so that was okay. Okay. I put my fantasy right. baseball money into that, Phil. It was great. I won my league that year. You won your league and put it all into Ethereum in 2012? $200 turned into $22,000. I was going to say, yeah, if you're in a Very bigger nice. league, you wouldn't be talking to us from there. You'd be on your <laughs> yep. I felt okay to risk my fantasy baseball money. Sure. I told the story yeah. on, uh, on Bill's uh, podcast recently. It was kind wow. of funny and was kind of awesome in the end. Yeah. So I'll just uh, weigh in a little bit on the collecting uh, front. Uh, I think one key distinction that you mentioned, Phil, uh, with regard to Deedon was uh, he was referring to earning assets. And I think a lot of the time when yeah, people talk about collecting, they're not really thinking earning assets. You know, you if you take NFTs, uh, they're not an earning <laughs> asset. So that's, uh, that's very different. Um, you know, Investment, really, you do need to have earning assets uh, if you want to be a, you know, kind of long-term investor, let's say, because um, you you should not rely on being able to sell something to somebody for more money. You should be able to get a satisfactory return from the asset itself over time, uh, even if you never sell it. Uh, so that's you know that's where I think that distinction is really really key. Um, I would just say, you know, one area where I kind of depart from that a little bit is I think if you only think of investing as collecting earning assets, you're basically going to become a business analyst, almost too exclusively a business analyst rather than a business analyst and a financial analyst. I feel like if you're both, then occasionally you're going to find mispricings that um, exist more from a financial standpoint, um, you know, and those maybe play out over a year, over two or three years, but they're not really collecting forever kind of things. Uh, whereas if you want to keep things forever, then you know, you, you don't want to pay some ridiculous valuation, but you are going to be much less concerned about the valuation uh, than the business itself. So I think, you know, people who feel like part of their edge is uh, in being a financial analyst don't necessarily need to be just uh, kind of 
have the, just the collecting um, mindset. And yeah, but I do think that where 99% of people in the market, and I'll include myself in that, is where we really struggle is um, to to not trade too much. You know, I think almost everyone trades too much these days. So that's why I really love the, the metaphor of collecting, because we all need to be pushed more in that direction of inaction uh, that Elliot was talking about, kind of not let the market suck you in to uh, buying something. I mean, I know I always <laughs> I get tempted almost daily when I when I see something on my watch list have a big down day on no news, I'm almost tempted to buy a, a little bit, you know? And so it's a good metaphor uh, in that sense, uh, for sure. Yeah, I I agree, John, by the way. I wasn't trying, this is why I was trying to disclaim that this was the one and only truth. I mean, I, I agree, you have to be some combination of financial analyst and business analyst. And as I've said, Many times before, I do think you need to decide if you're going to come at it from a business first or a security first uh, angle or lens, but that it's business first, not business only. And so you're totally right. I mean, you have to consider those other factors and there's nothing wrong. In fact, it can be just fantastic to buy something and hold it on a much shorter uh, time horizon. But again, as I just for me personally, the way I'm trying to generally deploy assets is to avoid mistakes and ensure a good or decent long-term result. And so there are inevitably going to be times where I make mistakes. There are inevitably going to be times when the world or the market goes against me. And so by taking this collector's lens to things, it, it ensures that if something goes wrong temporarily, if I have to wait longer than I thought, I still won't get a disastrous outcome. So I think that's been the primary use of it from my end. Terrific. Great. Well, thanks, guys. Let's uh, move on to Elliot's topic of the week. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about investing by looking at the unit economics instead of the aggregate economics of a business. So, you know, obviously every quarter here in the US, companies go through earnings season, they report their numbers. By and large, I mean, not by and large, but, you know, they give you the three statements and then companies will give you certain KPIs. Right, that that they think are key for understanding their business, but mostly what we get to see is just an aggregated picture of the company's performance. We don't see the specific picture. We don't see what an actual transaction or like piece of business looks like with this company. So, in some subscription companies, it's quite easy to figure it out. For example, you'll know that a customer spends $100 a month, they have this number of customers, they have this gross margin, and you can basically say, I know exactly how much this company earns per customer. Um, but in other cases, it's not necessarily so simple. So you have to be a little more uh, creative or you have to be you know, a little more persistent in trying to pick through the aggregated picture to get a smaller picture. And so, you know, the specific tools you have could be uh, several, but importantly, you know, sometimes the first question is like, what is the unit uh, that you want to focus on in this business? It could be more than one thing. I'll give an example of that, which is, you know, in Naked Wines, which I've mentioned a couple of times, to me, when I look at it, they have two separate unit economics that we need to know, which is one, 
you know, they talk a lot about customers and uh, the LTV of their customers and the customer acquisition cost, right? So what we want to know is what each individual customer is worth. To do that, we have to know the average lifespan of a customer. We have to know the gross margin and the actual operating costs that go against that customer. So typically, you know, in this case, you'd be talking about the fulfillment cost. You know, you'd have to know how frequently per year uh, a given customer purchases a case of wine. All these things to break down and specifically understand what a one individual customer is worth. Now, the other unit economics that we'd want to know in, in a company like this would be about uh, what one shipment is worth to the company, right? How many bottles they ship in each shipment, um, how much each bottle costs uh, for the company and how much each customer pays for each bottle, um, what the fulfillment costs are and distribution costs and other fixed costs they have to run against it are. Um, and so, you know, unless... And until you could get a clear picture of how to account for the given units, it's really hard to have an understanding of what a company's worth. Um, and the reason why I'm talking about this is a lot of times I'll see people say things like, oh, this thing's cheap. It trades at, you know, like a 6% free cash flow yield, and you know, they've grown earnings this amount. And all these things are good and well. I think it's helpful and that's a good screening process. But if you really want to get uh, to understand what the business is and pass that inflection from just being a stock analyst to a business analyst, you have to understand and get a deeper appreciation for um, you know what the unit economics are. And you know I think it's a fun and informative exercise. The more you do it, the more more you'll start seeing and start appreciating things and start getting a sense for you know even some companies that might not look, cheap on an aggregated basis might actually be very cheap if you account on them uh, account for them on a unit basis. Um, you know I talked about the Nick sleep letters in one of the early uh, podcasts that we did together and when he talked through the example of Home Depot when it's young or was it Walmart one of those two when they were young in their growth cycle, right for them the unit would be a store, not one transaction in a store but a store itself. And each time they added a store, what it contributed to their aggregated economics. Um, and for them, it was quite easy because most of the, for Home Depot or Walmart, most of the investment was happening via CapEx. So it's very clean to delineate exactly what CapEx is. But in some of these companies whose investment is happening via the income statement, it's even that much more important to understand the unit economics. Because then once you could do that, you could start distinguishing and saying specifically this portion of their operating expenses are uh, what I'd call you like specifically investment and otherwise would be free cash flow where they in steady state. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that you could bridge that gap between saying, you know, I, I, I want to invest in a company uh, who does have earnings today, who doesn't have to prove that they can make earnings. Um, so, you know, I was asked this question, like to talk about unit economics, because I guess in one of the earlier podcasts, I said that I don't mind investing in a company who is not making cash flow today, uh, so long as they're profitable on a unit economics basis. And their goal is to scale proven unit economics in contrast to those who don't have it. 
Um, so this is why this is what I'm getting at, right? I think it's very different to invest in a zero growth company who's got little gross margin uh, or even negative gross margin, something like Fubo, right? Where they they don't actually make money as they add on new customers. It's not a unit economics play there. You're talking about having to change the nature uh, of their relationship with suppliers as they continue to grow in order to actually get to a point where they have profitability or add on new services or whatever else it may be um, versus something like Naked Wines where the unit economics, if you do the work, are demonstrable and the company's growth is about scaling it. Um, so I wanted to open it up to you guys, how you think about some of these, any businesses that come to mind where, you know, doing that is helpful or, you know, just generally, uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think it's crucial. I mean, it gets, it's a good marriage between what John was just talking about, which is business versus financial analysis. I mean, it's very easy for a lot of financial analysts, myself included, to sit there on a screen and look at the numbers on Bloomberg or on a spreadsheet or a SEC filing or whatever and think that that's the one and only truth and you see a company producing no earnings or cash flow and you stop right there. And as you said, that can be completely backwards and really stupid. So I've tried to train myself out of that over the years and I've gotten far better at it. I think so I think the way you framed it is is perfect actually, which is that if you can do the work and be really comfortable that the unit economics makes sense and that each dollar spent to acquire a customer and put it into your business, um, you know, is a is a dollar well spent and that you have an advantage relative to everyone else and that you're exploiting that advantage intelligently. You don't need to stop right there, but that should be enough in a lot of cases, right? To really get you excited and and to you know spur a good investment case. So that that's great. And you know, I think the issue I have or the danger or the potential danger here would be that you know that spurred many of the best investments that we can all cite off the top of our head, right? I mean, whether it's Walmart and Home Depot, which you just talked about, where they actually showed, you know, company level aggregate losses and and less than impressive cash flow or a cash burn for a number of years while they were exploiting that advantage. But where, as you said, the store level economics, you know, the so-called four wall economics always made sense. Um, you know, that's great. And, you know, those were some of the best opportunities of all time. Amazon is certainly a well cited example of that. The problem I have is I've seen an increasing number of companies as the wolf in sheep's clothing in this world where they're, talking the talk and trying to convince people that their tortured math and adjusted, adjusted in air quotes, unit economics um, makes sense when they really don't, or where the unit economics might make sense, but they're going to take so long to play out that I think it just becomes increasingly difficult. So, you know, in the case of I mean, Amazon's actually a bad example, right? Because they always produced enough cash flow to sell fund and the cash flow was pretty obviously there. And you had, you know, some really smart people just diverting it into things that they thought were worthwhile. And so it really wasn't, I, I don't know. But it, it's different than, you know, something like a a store or Naked Wines or something where it's a little bit more straightforward and it's just a decision. Okay, are these unit economics real or not? And then how long, you know, there's inputs to that math, right? As you As you walk through, um, but let's say that the you know the break even or the payback period is three or four years on a Costco, which I think it still is, or probably in that ballpark for a Home Depot. Um, and I think we've we've I think you've walked through that math on on Naked Wines. That's great. You know, if it stretches to like ten years, 
you know, that's where I start to get a little nervous because things just happen, right? I mean, the world changes and and it just gets more difficult. So three to four to five years seems totally reasonable to me. And look, 10 years could be reasonable. It's just the longer out you go, the more nervous I get. So I guess that's the only pushback I would have. Absolutely. And to add to the pushback side of things, I mean, it goes to whether you're adding customers or whether you're adding stores. But um, one risk is that your earliest customers and your earliest stores are likely to have better economics than your last. Sure. And so if you're just scaling things and assuming all things stay equal, um, you know, there, there could be some challenges. The beauty with certain concepts when they're early on um, the economics, like look at Costco, their stores are still improving on a unit basis, um, even though they've kind of taken oh, yeah. up a good chunk of the country. Um, so I think it's important to try to distinguish between those that do have that opportunity to improve the economics. You know, I, I gave, a, I think my MOI uh, best ideas presentation when I did PayPal and Roku was titled um, Improving Unit Economics. Right, because each was reliant on deepening the engagement of their customer base. You know, whether it be making more payments at PayPal or watching more hours per household at Roku. Um, so, but but the risk is definitely that as you scale up your base, you're getting less good customers or less good economics uh, at a store. I don't know when you put a Starbucks across the street from another Starbucks, which happened near my. Uh, good old 8th Street apartment in Manhattan, uh, you'd have to think that one erodes the economics of another <laughs> at a certain point. Um, yeah, so that's actually a good one. I, I apologize for forgetting who... I was just reading about something pertaining to Starbucks. You know, The growth rate that Starbucks achieved in the 90s was just absolutely insane. But I think that's one of the other pushbacks that I would, that I would offer is that well, there's three actually. One is what you said, which is basically cannibalization, right? That you know the 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 second customer is not nearly as good as the first, and if you push that too far, you can start eating your own lunch, and it's really it can turn into a problem. The second would be that because this works, or or in cases where it does work, I think it actually becomes pretty easy to convince yourself to go too far, right? So even Starbucks, as enormously successful as it's been over several decades, has had some pretty painful retrenchments where they've had to close stores and lay off people. And, you know, I think in the financial crisis, they got completely run over. And so it's almost, and that's not their fault. I mean, I, I just think that's why I'm pointing it out is it's almost human nature, right? When something good is working, it's pretty easy to take it a step too far. And then the the skill becomes that you, you need to pivot and respond to that. And then the third thing I would say is just that in this, for whatever reason right now, I mean, maybe it's just because it's such a good idea. It's finally having its moment in the sun, but it does seem like, we're having more of this kind of thought become the pervasive mental model of both executives and business and investors than ever before. So anything like that that really catches the popular imagination sometimes gets me a little nervous. Yeah, maybe I'll jump in as well. Um, I I love the approach, Elliot. I think if done well, it can really unearth uh, some huge long-term winners. Uh, as you guys have both pointed out, uh, historical examples, and Elliot, uh, I know you have already seen such success play out in your own portfolio. Um, and I guess looking forward, uh, wine uh, could be a, a, a good example as well, naked wines, that is. Um, 
I, I think to just kind of get on the some of the, the issues or potential issues with this, since we're all in agreement that it's a very uh, valid and, and excellent approach, actually probably the best long-term approach to investing uh, that I know, um, I do feel like uh, it has become much more popular as a, as a way to invest over time. Um, and some of the metrics that are used are so widely used, like uh, lifetime value of a customer, customer acquisition cost, that I feel like there might be companies out there that are managing strictly to those metrics as opposed to kind of managing a little bit more flexibly toward the long-term value of the business. And, and, you know, just like you can tweak financial measures, you can probably do things to, to these widely used metrics to make them look better than they, than they actually are. Um, so, you know, that would be uh, one concern. Another concern is just how many companies actually provide the granularity of data that's needed to, um, you know, to, to develop confidence in this kind of approach. Uh, I looked at uh, Naked Wine's uh, financial disclosures, and they're absolutely terrific. I mean, they they basically do the work for you. It's it's really nice, um, and and I don't know if they give all the all the formulas for for all the the metrics that they show, um, but that would be certainly very helpful. Um, Elliot, maybe you can weigh in on that specific example because I know you you've dug really deep. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think they do give you like just about everything you'd want to see to kind of piece it together um, and to understand. Uh, they do give you pretty good disclosures behind it, but it's, um, I'd say, best in class disclosure, but far from perfect disclosure and leaves a lot of work to truly figure out, you know, how many cases each customer orders. They don't give you the shipping unit economics. So you have to do iterative assumptions and triangulate with other uh, data points that you could pick up from various places like job listings to make sure that you're at least working in the right ballpark. Um, and without that, you can't truly know the unit economics. Um, but to maybe take a step back, because I do think you know it often gets associated with investing in you know, no, uh, no earnings companies to understand whether they, and, and, you know, I put it out there as such, so definitely guilty as charged in that sense. Um, but even, you know, I gave a company like Cisco a deep look, uh, at a couple points and had shares in it back in 2012. And, you know, I, for me to invest, if I don't know the unit economics, I'm not going to do it. So even though I think it's interesting or was interesting at the time, on a free cash flow yield basis, and you know, Garpy, um, I still want to know, you know, how much does one individual switch cost, right? What's the margin again on this? Um, how many of these do they need to sell a year to get uh, to their revenue in that particular segment, right? So I think it's just still, you know, maybe if there's one thing I'd hope people take away, it's like understanding what the most basic unit of account in each business in your portfolio is and how it works. Like whether it be the airplane with one flight and knowing, you know, how many seats they have to fill to break even for the amount of gas they're going to consume on that flight, right? And and the the staff that they're the pilot and the uh the pilots and the crew, 
and whatnot. Like, I think it's really helpful and it's the way to truly understand um, what levers the business has to pull um, and what does or does not have to go right for, for it to work as just a basic business. Yeah, I think it, to keep it simple is a great idea. And I think you're right that if if you sit down and you can't say to yourself, here are the one or two or three KPIs and, and unit level economic measures that matter to this business, you don't know what you own. And, and likewise, I always hate thinking that regulation is the answer to anything. But in the world where so much disclosure is prescriptive and there are regulations in place, it still boggles my mind that it's never been a part of the SEC's framework to require, just as you know, Sarbanes-Oxley requires CEOs to certify the financial results under GAAP, but allows them to pump out a million adjusted metrics that have no bearing in reality, let alone any sort of accounting validity. Why then they're not also required to say, these are the KPIs we use internally, right? So it doesn't have to be a specific number, but it has to be one or more right, where you testify or certify that these are the KPIs, the unit level numbers that we as the business managers use, right? So to your example, you know, and it's, by the way, it's a great sign when a company like Naked Wines puts out pretty much everything you'd want to know, right? They don't have to do the math for you necessarily because there are assumptions involved. And I'm not saying there's one true answer that management should be held accountable for, but my gosh, it just seems like it would be such an obvious improvement to to make companies accountable to that kind of disclosure so that analysts could could do their own work and and have that kind of disclosure out there rather than having to, you know, rely on misinformation or guesswork that that is out there. Yeah, it's something I'd really like to see a little more of. Um, I think so many companies just dodge actually getting into the weeds under this, you know, we got to protect our competitive position. Um, even though most people like especially competitors who speak to other customers do get that sort of granularity anyway. So it's really like shareholders are the only ones who don't truly get that without doing the work. And, you know, different levels of shareholders have different levels of resources and access and um, could kind of get there or not in different ways. Um, And I think, you know, if you want people who are good shareholders who are thinking about, you know, business first, um, that should be uh, where you want to focus, where you want to send their attention and what you want them thinking about more so than like, what do you need to do to hit next quarter's guidance, right? Or yeah, something yeah. like that. But you're right. I mean, that's why it's it's been part of my little crusade on governance and investor relations because the best companies already get it and already do it and good for them. But it's such an easy and obvious thing for everybody else with good intentions to do as well. And then the third level would be, yeah, if the SEC or any governing body wants to encourage a more fair, transparent level playing field, this is the most obvious thing under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Do you guys have um, other examples of companies that you think do this particularly well in terms of providing a lot of data to uh, help investors do this work? Well, look, I mean, Elliot called out the airlines without a trigger warning, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll take that bait. And look, I actually think they did a very poor job of engaging with shareholders the right way, for the most part, with some limited exceptions. I think they were way too focused on monthly 
variance and, and quarterly variance and quarterly data and playing the short-term game of who's going to hit the number this quarter and who's long and short based on this or that. I mean, I think they did not engage their owners in a in a productive way, but I think they did do a good job of disclosing all the unit economics that you would care about. And partly that's because they have to, I guess. I mean, back to my point about regulation, I mean, the BTS data, you know, discoverable through the Department of Transportation here in the U.S. has copious numbers reported every month. And so that data is all out there. And the, the airlines have done a good job, you know, to Elliot's point. I mean, the unit economics of the industry are out there and they're pretty well understood. And um, at least part of that credit goes to the airlines, I guess. So they've done a good job. I think, you know, in this day and age of the, you know, the world of software companies being right at the forefront. I think most of them have done a good job, but you know, again, this is the, the third time we've talked about it now. I mean, I think for everyone that's done a good job, I could probably point to one that's done somewhat of a disingenuous job by just torturing the numbers and over-adjusting everything to include the good stuff and exclude the bad stuff that it becomes kind of self-defeating. So, I think the brick-and-mortar retailers give you everything you need to truly understand the economics of the business, <laughs> whether or not you think they're, you know, great businesses or not, is not necessarily the question, but like they give you a lot to really understand the performance of each individual store. But that's been challenged as, you know, online as a channel has grown. And I've seen some be way better than others and how they communicate where and how, uh, you know, online uh, flows through and how to think about it. Um, I think Vail Resorts does a pretty good job with their disclosures and understanding, you know, past sales and all the other ancillary uh, revenue items and how that works. Um, those are a couple of the ones that come come to mind right away. Um, I'm trying to think, of, I, I don't necessarily want to name a couple of businesses that are terrible, but there are definitely some that I feel like really try hard to make it as impossible uh, as can be to understand what's important in the business. And that's never ideal. And I tend to like look away pretty fast when I encounter those kinds of situations. So harder to like immediately recall them. Um, but I do think that's a good filtering process, right? Those that do and Absolutely. don't give you uh, anything viable to work with. I would say actually, John, um, I think, Believe it or not, that and again, there's an interesting chicken and egg question here about regulation. But I would say banks and insurance companies generally do a pretty good job on this front. There, it gets a little trickier because the unit level economics are uh, are indiscernible even for senior officials of the, those individual companies, right? I mean, there aren't many bank CEOs and CFOs doing loan by loan analysis, but it is pretty easy to get an accurate snapshot of those economics. Um, at a, at a semi-aggregated level and likewise insurance companies. So I would, I would generally endorse those accounting practices and disclosure practices. I think some of these like e-com and software companies would like, they give pretty good disclosures to find out exactly what their average customers like. I've been like hitting the walls of a couple of them being like, tell us what the difference between your most engaged decile and your least engaged decile looks like. Like give us the picture of what the best and the worst look like. And let us try to do some work on figuring out if the average will evolve toward, you know, which one has the gravity. 
Um, you know, I think some of them do a disservice, like PayPal in particular, from the earliest day as a public company. I was like, if they told us what their most active and engaged decile of users looked like, I think the stock would be much more valuable than people realize because those specific cohorts are just so much more valuable than than the average. And, you know, there's some companies where your top 10% of customers are inevitably going to drive like Oh, we call it Pareto efficiency. So top 20% of customers are going to drive 80% of the economic value of the whole business. And, you know, I think there's certain cases where you'd really want to know if that is or is not the case. And, and in some cases, that's actually like power to the business that's that much better. Like they have that much opportunity to get the other, uh, you know, the 80% of customers who don't drive value into that camp. Um, and for some businesses, it's actually like really dangerous because they tell you they have this huge customer base, uh, but really, you know, one in five users drives all the value and they might not be quite like, like in some cases, the most active users are perhaps the most likely to churn as opposed to the opposite. Um, so there are interesting quirks when you get presented this like agglomerated pool as opposed to uh, like cohort information. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you raised a good point that there are plenty of businesses that could juice the stock or, you know, less commonly, I guess, depress the stock based on what they choose to highlight or choose to disclose. And there's not a good way around that uh, other than doing your own work and, and thinking about it. So that's a tough one. Well, great. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Uh, two terrific discussions. I hope everyone listening enjoyed uh, this uh, episode as well. I would just uh, draw your attention to the bonus episode we released a few days ago where Elliot uh, spoke with Evan Tyndall. Do you want to, Elliot, give just a quick summary of that? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that was a really fun conversation. Evan's an interesting guy, uh, professional poker player turned portfolio manager. So, you know, talking about his experiences and lessons from the uh, poker world and how that knowledge ports to the investing world. And I think there's like a great story, great overlap. Um, and Evan talks about some of his specific investment experiences in Facebook and Apple. Like the, the real meat of the conversation, I think also was on this growth first value debate and Evan's contribution to that um, and how he's thinking about it. And then lastly is a, a pitch on this Canadian cable company, Kojiko, which is a unique uh, value situation out there right now today. Um, had a lot of fun talking with Evan, and I think I think you'd all enjoy. Yeah, so definitely go uh, check that out if you haven't uh, already. Take care, uh, everybody, for now. Elliot, Phil, thanks. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.